All right, let's find our seats and we'll get into uh, this morning's message. Hey, if we could open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. This is a, a very significant event in the life of certainly Jesus and of his disciples as well. The transfiguration of Jesus. And let's read uh, the first 13 verses and let's get into it again. Uh, if you recall, two weeks ago we, we got right around verse 4. And I'd like to just go in again and, 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 and continue onward uh, from the beginning. And, uh, and so notice what it says. It says, after six days, and these six days... Uh, were after this time when Peter made his embarrassing debut, <laughs> one of his embarrassing things that he said, uh, rebuking Jesus for saying uh, that he was going to go to the Jerusalem and be killed and then be raised the third day. And remember, Peter rebuked him, and then Jesus looked at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, uh, for you do not savor the things of God but the things of man. And obviously Jesus speaking not, not really to Peter, but the, the, the spirit behind that whole idea was very demonic in nature, uh, seeking to uh, keep Jesus from coming to the cross. So it was uh, about six days after that that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands." And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and, and what a wonderful place for us to be this morning. And Lord, just open it to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Notice after six days, uh, in the very beginning of verse 1, and, and this phrase, now after six days, was not only linked to the previous event that I just spoke of, but... Uh, specifically to verse 28 of the previous uh, chapter. If you remember, verse 28 of chapter 16 uh, says this. It says, um, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here 
who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then, and, and remember that the Bible, that the chapter breaks that we have in our Bibles are not inspired like the rest of the Bible. Those chapter breaks were inserted for us so that we could uh, navigate through the Bible, that when we quote portions of Scripture, we can give chapter and verse. And there is an unfortunate chapter break here because this really belongs to the next chapter in chapter 17. In fact, if you forget about the chapter division and read uh, 28 right into the next verse, it'll all make sense to you, it'll all, or it should make sense. And um, because Jesus is speaking to those who are standing there and that they would see the coming of his kingdom. And then Jesus was transfigured before them. It was sort of like a preview of what was coming. And, and, and they saw, in a sense, the coming of Christ. And they saw him in his glory. And by removing that chapter break, it becomes more obvious what it's referring to. And so notice that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. And why just Peter and, and James and John? Why them? And what about the other you know, eight or nine disciples that are left? Where, where were they? You know, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. They're probably down in the valley, and Jesus invited these three. And if you think about it, you know... Each of these three men would be used in amazing ways by God. We know that Peter would minister to the Jews. He ministered to the Gentiles as well, but his ministry would be predominantly to the Jews. And he would go on to write two epistles or two letters in his name, First and Second Peter. We know that Peter was significant on the day of Pentecost. He delivered that message in, on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people got saved. And what about John? We know that he would write the gospel that bears his name. He would also write three epistles himself or letters. And he would also pen the book of Revelation, which we have gone through with great delight. Remember how that, how, I don't know about you, but it was one of the richest times of my life going through the book of Revelation. And, and just sideway, just a little side note, it does say there's a blessing attached to those who read it. Were you blessed? I know I was. It took us 14 months to get through it, but it was awesome. But John, but, but John penned that book, dictated by the Spirit of God, by Jesus. And what about James? He was John's brother and would ultimately suffer a martyr's death uh, in testifying of the truth of Christ. So, again, why these three men? And I, I think it's interesting what the Scripture says. In Deuteronomy 19, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. In Numbers, it says, Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall not be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, but one witness is not sufficient. Um, excuse me, I totally butchered that. The, the, whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, but not, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against any person. So when you think about this, John and Peter and James, they're three witnesses. So this even fulfills the law of them seeing what has happened. And it, it, it shows the proof or the verity uh, of whatever happened. Because if one person sees something, big deal. Right? You could be lying, but when you have two or three people who can vouch for the same thing, and you could put them in separate rooms, right, Tom? You could interrogate them in separate rooms, and they would all be giving the same story. 
And you could cross-examine them and, keep, and then take them out to lunch and try to get them to confess. And, and nothing, and it doesn't work. They're telling you the truth. And they're willing to give their life for what they saw. That brings a great amount of force behind their testimony. Wouldn't you agree? And so when you think of Peter and John, these two witnesses, even many years after they were um, after Christ had died, uh, Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, notice what he says. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard, notice, Peter witnessing of this event many years after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension. He says, We remember, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's recalling this event that we just read. He's witnessing to it again. And John as well, in his gospel, remember what he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Certainly he did. As they were on the mountain with him, they saw Jesus, no longer the carpenter, the, the, you know, the, the, the ruddy-looking man from, from Nazareth. No, they see Jesus in an instant. He was just transformed into his glorified state. And they got a picture. They got an understanding. They saw it with their eyes. And they saw Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine what that would do to us if we were to see that? Let me suggest to you, if we saw that, every one of us would be on our faces. And they did the same thing. It was a very natural thing when you're in the presence of Almighty God to hit the bricks. You know, it's amazing to me how some people say, yeah, I was in the presence of God, and I stood up, and I looked him right in the face, and I shook his hand. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> if you were really in the presence of, the, of God, your breath would be taken out of you, and you'd be sucking the dust. You'd be inhaling dust until he would put his hand on you and say, don't be afraid, stand on your feet. He says, we beheld his glory, John says, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that. Whenever you're in the presence of God, there ought to be an awe, a reverence, uh, an undoing of yourself. Never when you're in the presence of God are you filled with pride and, and you know, some kind of bravado. No, it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. If you really come into contact with God, you're undone. To be in the presence of Almighty God, the perfection, the beauty, the holiness, the, everything about him, you know, the, the language can't even describe. As much as the disciples and the other writers of the, of the Bible have tried to attempt to describe, words fail. They're, they're just like, I, it, it was like this. And, and that's what it is. It's a bunch of you know, similes. It's like this. It's like this, but not quite, but it's like this. I, I can't describe it. And see, that's the God who we serve, and I love that. And notice that Jesus, verse 1, led them up on a high mountain by him, by themselves. And just prior to this event, remember that they were in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is up here in the north of Israel. 
and Caesarea Philippi is right to the south of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is this mountain range up here that's even snow-capped during the summertime. And uh, I've told you before, on Mount Arbel on the Galilee, for the last couple times we've been to Israel, I can see Mount Hermon in the distance. There's a little haze, but you can see the snow-capped mountain, and it's 80-some degrees where I'm standing, and I can still look and see the snow-capped mountains. It's really surreal. But we believe that this is where this occurred, because they were up in this area, and it was the very next thing chronologically that happened after the events of chapter 16. It went right directly into this. So they were already up in that area in Caesarea Philippi. And any mountain there, if you look on this topographical map, you can kind of see there's, not, there's a mountain range right to the north of them, and so it would be very natural for them to go up there. But notice that he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This idea of being transfigured, it's a really interesting word. It's, in the Greek, it's metamorpho. It's metamorpho. And it literally means to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure, to change. And, and this is the English word, or the Greek word, where we get our English word metamorphosis. And recently, just a few days ago, I was actually on Twitter, and I found this really... Uh, this poor, deceived, ignorant soul who puts something up there, and it says, evolution from tadpole to frog. Now, if you know anything about tadpoles, and I'm bringing out this idea of metamorphosis. We're going to spend a little time on this because they put up this idea of the frog, and I got this video that I want to show to you, and it's very short, but I'm going to talk while it's playing, and I think you'll see why. So a tadpole in a pool of water goes through a metamorphosis, right? First, a large head with a tail, then eventually small legs come out of the sides until those legs become larger and the tadpole becomes a frog. But this is not evolution. This is not evolution because the frog doesn't go beyond this final form. Do you follow? He doesn't go beyond this final form. In fact, it's just a developmental stage of the frog from the larval stage to the stage of an adult-grown frog. And the same thing occurs with a butterfly. We know this. In its earlier stages of development, it's a caterpillar. And then in its life cycle, it becomes a butterfly. And this has been observed in real time when a butterfly or when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. So the frog and the butterfly have always been a frog and a butterfly. But a metamorphosis had to occur to reveal what and who they really were and are. You know, you even look at a child, a child growing in the womb, and now they have technology. Oh, to see the, the, the conception, I, I've, I'm a, I marvel at some of these videos, you know, they can actually see the sperm and the egg coming together, and then uh, just a few days later, things start happening, and next thing you know, there's this little peanut in there, and then that peanut starts to grow, and then there's a little cord attached to the side of the wall, and, and then it begins to grow, and, then it, and, and it's amazing to watch, but that's not evolution, that's just the normal stage, the life cycle of a human being, Right? So that's what a metamorphosis is. It's a change of one form to another. And the Apostle Paul explains something similar, but I'm going to make a very clear distinction here shortly because it's important that we understand this. Remember, Paul explained a metamorphosis in the context of the rapture of the church and what happens to our mortal bodies when we are raptured. But he did it in a slightly different way, and hopefully... uh, 
shortly I'll be able to clearly summarize in a few moments what, the, what those are. But notice with me at 1 Corinthians. Let me just read it to you. Paul's speaking of this body that we're going to have. We're going to be transformed. We're going to be translated. And it tells us in Corinthians 15, verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, how do, what you sow is not, what, is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. For all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another kind, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. And all of us know that. We recognize that. We observe that through what? Science. I can see it. There are also celestial bodies, he says, which is the body that Christ rose in. His resurrection body, the type of body that you and I are going to receive. We have a terrestrial body right now, but we will receive a celestial body. He says there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from one another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are all those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And I'm looking forward to that day. Anybody ready for an upgrade? I'm looking forward to that upgrade. I don't have to pay Microsoft or Apple. It's an upgrade that you and I are going to get. No more uh, broken hips and no more things going on. No more high blood pressure. No more cancer. But Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines metamorphosis this way. Because that's what this Greek word is that happened to Jesus. It was a metamorphosis. It says this. It's a change of physical form, structure, or substance. Notice, especially by supernatural means. And certainly, uh, this is uh, the transfiguration of Jesus. But with Jesus' transfiguration, there is a very marked difference. Because who Jesus really was was simply unveiled for a short period of time before those three disciples. For a short time. And the real miracle here, think about this. Many people think that the real miracle was that he was trans, you know, transfigured before them. But let me suggest to you, the real miracle was that for 31 years, it was veiled. <laughs> For 33 years, it was kept under wraps. You remember the, the, the book of Revelation, what, what, the, what the word uh, revelation actually means? Apocalypsis. It means the unveiling, the removing of the wraps. That's what it is. It's the removing of the wraps. Seeing who Jesus really is. The real miracle is that for 33 years, they didn't see that. And for just a small portion of time, 
God says, I need to show you guys something because you're going to need some encouragement because the days after I leave are going to be very dark and you're going to be tried right to death. You're going to be tried and you're going to need to know this. You're going to need to have that witness in your own heart that I am who I said I am. I am who all the scriptures in the Old Testament said I was. You need to know that. And let me suggest to you, you need to know that too. We need to know that. Because if you don't believe that, you're going to be lost in a world of chaos. Anybody realize that we live in a world of chaos? <laughs> right now, it's chaotic. It's a mess. Yes, it's demonic. <laughs> a lot of things are happening nowadays. But I want to share something with you that's very important. In the case of the frog and the butterfly... They were going through natural processes, right? A metamorphosis through a natural process from flesh to flesh. That frog became a frog. He always had, he's always going to be a frog. When he mates with another frog, they're going to have little baby frogs. And baby frogs continue and they continue. We have them even today. Isn't that amazing? And you, you, you go down to Webster Park and you look over there in, in, the, in the little pool and you can see little tadpoles. They're still doing the same thing. Wow, that's amazing. We've been fed alive, folks. Evolution. <laughs> so in that case, the frog and the, 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 the butterfly, they were going through natural processes from flesh to flesh. But in the case of the rapture of the church, what is that? That's the church going from a place of flesh where men and women of the earth to a spiritual body, to a celestial body, like Paul said, to the heavenly body. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus was heavenly. He came from heaven. Then he was incarnate, meaning he came into the human body through Mary. The Spirit of God planted that seed in her. She was a virgin. And that seed was planted, and she gave birth to Jesus as a virgin woman. He was incarnate. A big difference between these three things, right? A frog, this is a frog, he goes through a metamorphosis. You and I at the rapture, we go through a change, certainly a metamorphosis, from this body to an incorruptible body. In an instant, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. But Jesus was heavenly. He always was heavenly. Then he becomes incarnate. And then it tells us that in John 1.14, it says that, in, uh, and the word became flesh. It became flesh and dwelt among us. And then veiled for 33 years, except for here briefly in this moment. And then glorified again in splendor at his resurrection and ascension. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the difference? He was, trans, he was transfigured, but there's a big difference between the, things, the other things that we talked about in Christ because all those things, we had a beginning. Jesus never had a beginning. He always was and came into the earth incarnate. So this appearance of Jesus after his resurrection and ascension is the description that we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, and we'll look at that shortly. But seeing this event would no doubt encourage the disciples. Would it encourage you? It would be something that would bolster their faith when times got hard for them, and it did get hard for them. The first century church was on the run from Rome all the time, being hunted down. 
And that is why Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, speaking of the rapture of the church, he says, we'll comfort one another with these words. It is a comfort, isn't it? It's a comfort to know that we are not confined to this body of death. We're going to get a new body. One like Jesus had when he rose from the grave. In 1 Corinthians, it says this. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He finishes in 1 Thessalonians 4 and tells us, Then all those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together, translated, metamorphosed into this celestial body. Amazing thing that's going to happen soon. Hopefully before the end of the service. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be the greatest time for the rapture is when everyone's in church? Of course, there's different time zones. And when the Lord does this, he's going to do it. It's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. And I'm looking forward to that day. That'll be the greatest day in history, folks. But notice in verse 2 it says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Before his death and his resurrection, Jesus' physical appearance wasn't what drew people, was it? It was what was inside of him. It was what was inside of him, his candor, the way he spoke to people, his demeanor, his character, his words was what drew people. But what does the scripture say that Jesus looked like? We, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but in Isaiah it tells us that he, um, he has no form or comeliness, and meaning beauty. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And, and, and that's just so like God. He's not, you know, he could have been anything. He could have been this Fabio-looking character, you know, blonde flowing hair and, you know, strong arms and, you know, big chest. And this guy that just, oh, wow, he's so beautiful. But no, he came. When, nobody, when anybody saw him, he'd look like anybody else. There's nothing outwardly that would attract you to Christ. Because everything about God, everything about the whole character of God, the nature of God, is always about what's inside. Hasn't he been grinding that into us? It's not what's on the outward appearance. That means nothing. You can look really nice on the outside and be a devil on the inside. And doesn't history prove that out to be true? The most well-spoken, well-dressed, well-mannered, you know, you know, well-educated you know, a man who knows how to hold himself and speak to any crowd and just be the center of everything. The guy could be a pedophile and a complete idiot. But this description of Jesus in verse 2 of Matthew 17 here is very much like what we see in the post-resurrection descriptions we read in Scripture, like in Revelation chapter 1. What does it say? When John says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and, and hair were white like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire." And his feet were like fine brass as it is refined in the furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters. Isn't that amazing, that description? White as lightning, white as wool. His eyes were like, like fire. 
the purity, the holiness. See, that is what causes us to fall to our face because we've never been in the presence of someone like that. Not physically. If Christ were to show up here involuntarily, we would all fall to the ground. Even in our seats, we would fall to the ground. What is happening? I can't believe what, you know, and you'd be, you'd be convulsing because you'd be so afraid and yet so filled with love at the same time. Kind of a strange paradox. So verse 3, And behold, Moses, as Jesus is being transfigured there, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Notice, not with the disciples, but with Jesus. And so Peter, James, and John may have thought that Jesus was going to bring about the kingdom at that moment because Jesus was talking about the kingdom. So he's thinking, okay, this is what he was talking about, but it wasn't. But the transfiguration served to do a few things. Number one, it encouraged the disciples on who Jesus really was. They finally saw him in his glorified state. It showed the reality of Jesus' oneness with his Father. It showed his messianic mission. It showed them that there is indeed a kingdom coming. And they saw a preview of not only Christ, but Moses and Elijah, people they had read about and, 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 and looked at in the synagogues. And they saw Moses and Elijah in bodily form. And the fact that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified and rise again the third day, all of these things, the, the transfiguration did. So what was the significance of Moses and Elijah being present there? Well, we know that Moses represented what? The law, right? And the Old Testament, and, and then Elijah represented the first of the great Old Testament prophets. So Moses and Elijah represented those who prepared the world for the Messiah's first advent or his first coming when he was born into the Virgin Mary. Because all the prophets, Moses and the prophets, they all prophesied about that event. And now, Jesus and Peter, James and John, and their successors, meaning you and I as well, we're going to present those, present, um, uh, those, we would represent those who would prepare the world for Christ's second coming. Telling people that he is coming back. And you and I get that privilege. Are you doing it? Are you willing? The darker this world gets, folks, it's going to be harder and harder. Your, your own heart is going to be like, I, I, I don't want to face the look on people's faces. I remember when Joe and I went out a couple Tuesdays ago, we had some really great encounters with some really wonderful people. And there was one woman, and she just happened to be Jewish, and it's funny, it's not funny, it's sad, but we opened the door, and as soon as she saw the Bible in our hands, she goes, I don't want to talk, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and she shut the door in her face. And so Joe and I just looked at each other, and went, okay. It's not the first time that that's happened. There may be another significance of those who were present there at the transfiguration. Perhaps all who were there were representing categories of individuals who will be present on the earth to inherit the kingdom after the second coming of Christ. And this is just something to consider. It's, it's interesting. Because remember, the kingdom, which the Old Testament prophets had foretold hundreds of years prior to the birth of Christ, um, 
It is yet future to us. It is called the thousand-year reign. It's also called the millennial reign of Christ. And so representatives of those to inherit the kingdom, those that were there at that time of Jesus' transfiguration, could represent those when the earth commences, or when the kingdom, excuse me, commences on the earth. So let's take a look at just the disciples, the first one there. The disciples may represent individuals who will be present in their physical bodies at the time of the millennium. And this group may represent those who had come to believe in Jesus during the great tribulation, which is yet future to us, who had gone through much persecution and peril and are alive after the second coming. Because there's going to be people, many are going to die when Jesus returns in the battle of Armageddon, but there's going to be people alive that will enter in. So uh, they represent that group, perhaps. Moses may represent uh, saved individuals who have died or will die, and this group may represent those Old and New Testament saints who died in faith, including those believers who will be martyred during the Great Tribulation period. And I would encourage you to look at Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Those who are dead in Christ. And also Revelation 6, chapter nine, or verses 9 through 11. And thirdly, Elijah. He may represent saved individuals who will not experience death, but will be caught up to heaven alive. And that's us. And it's not just us. This group may represent those who, like Elijah... Like Elijah, remember, he was caught up in a whirlwind and he was taken to heaven. He was still alive. He didn't see death. And even Enoch in Genesis 5 tells us that. They didn't see physical death, but the church also being those at the rapture who will also not see physical death, but will be translated or changed in the twinkling of an eye and caught up to heaven. They represent that group. And Elijah may be the one who represents those people. And these three groups will be present, certainly, when Christ inaugurates his kingdom here on the earth. And also we'll see the Lord glorified. So in verse 3 it says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking. You know, what were they talking about? In Matthew's gospel, in fact, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, it doesn't tell us what they were talking about. But in Luke's gospel, it does tell us what they were talking about. And, and this is what it was. And it says, And behold, two men talked with him, and it was Moses and Elijah, who were, what well, tells us that, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Certainly Moses and Elijah weren't there to tell Jesus, you know this is coming, right? I mean, there's nothing new that Jesus needed. Moses and Elijah didn't need to give Jesus more information. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that it was going to happen. He knew it had to happen. But maybe they were there just encouraging him. Because in his humanity, there, there he is as well. Because he's 100% man, 100% God. He had feelings, you know. When he was crucified on the cross, it wasn't just, you know, he didn't feel it because he was God in the flesh. No, it was, he went through the full brunt of the whole thing. And then spiritually, when he took the sin of the world upon his shoulders, yeah, he did that too. That wasn't a cakewalk. That wasn't easy. That's why he said, if there's any other way, Lord, but not my will would be done, yours. 
Notice in verse 4, it says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus. Notice that nobody ever asked Peter a question. <laughs> Have you ever answered a question that hadn't been asked you? You start answering a question, or you know, you see like on Jeopardy, you know, the, you know Pat Sajak or whoever it is is reading the question. The person in, in, immediately starts to answer the question, and then they get it, they blow it, and they, they look foolish on national television because they didn't listen to the whole question. Well, nobody's asking Peter a question, but he answered nonetheless. The impetuous Peter reminds me a lot of myself and my old nature, and God's refining me more now, certainly. But Peter answered, and he interrupted the Lord and Elijah and Moses from talking. And in the parallel account in Mark's gospel, in Mark 9, verse 6, it tells us that he did this because he didn't know what to say. For they were greatly afraid. What's the best thing to do when you're afraid? Yeah, shut your mouth. But have you ever been this way, or maybe you've been this way, where, you know, for whatever reason, you, you can't, you just, nervous energy, you open your mouth, you got to say something. The room is quiet, but you got to say something. It's a good time to just go, if you've got to physically put your hand on your mouth, do it. Perhaps Peter should have done the same thing. And notice what he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And now God the Father needs to interrupt Peter from continuing on in his foolishness because Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were not equals. Moses and Elijah were mere men that God had used to do great things. But Jesus is God, and he's the only uncreated one. Those two men were created. We know that in John's gospel, you know, we're not going to go through these two verses, but I'd write, I'd write them down if I were you. But he was the in, image, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. That means if he's creating them, he wasn't created himself. He was uncreated. He's the only uncreated being. He created. And these three tabernacles were not needed, and God only allowed one in Jerusalem, and God was not, and God was to be worshipped, and no one else. In Deuteronomy, it tells us in chapter 12, verse 10. God's speaking to the Israelites before they came into the promised land. He says, but when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you the rest from all of your enemies around you that you shall dwell safely, then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring your sacrifices, and I'm paraphrasing here, you bring your tithes and your offerings, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God with your sons and your daughters. And take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place where the Lord chooses. One temple. One temple. God never desired three temples or shrines. In fact, God didn't even require his people to build him one. But a temple they needed. The Jews, they needed a temple. Because what happens at a temple? Sacrifice. That's where the worship is. And remember, David even wanted to build God a, a house because David built this really nice house. And then he spoke to Nathan, the prophet, and he said, you know what, I'm living in luxury and yet God is in this tent, this tabernacle. And God told 
Nathan. He goes, go tell David he doesn't need to build me a house, but I'm going to build him a house. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7, God says, wherever, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoke a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It didn't happen. He never desired a house. One temple, not three. And why? Because there's only one who deserves to be worshipped. Not Moses, not Elijah. While he was still speaking, verse 5, notice. Notice, while he was still speaking. So Peter had interrupted this sacred meeting between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And now God had to intervene. It's called hoof and mouth disease. When you stick your foot in your mouth. Lord, it's good that we're here. Let me build a house for you. And when, you know, God's like, nope. And that's why the Lord will come in and we're going to see this. But, um, but it's all happened to us at one time where we, we, we don't know what to say. And so we just say anything and we end up making, being very foolish. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And I love that. While he's still speaking, I mean, think of it. As he's speaking, the, the cloud overshadows them. The Lord interrupts Peter speaking. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In other words, don't, hear, you know, don't listen to Moses so much or even Elijah, although they were great men. I really want you to listen to my son. Listen to his words. He was the very one who inspired Moses and Elijah to write those words in the scripture. But this cloud is, is um, in the Greek, is called nephili. And, and this is nothing other than the Shekinah glory of God. The very presence of God manifest in a cloud. And it tells us this in Exodus 13, when Israel left Egypt. Remember, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. It's the same thing, the, the same idea. He went before them in a cloud to lead them by, by the day and by night with a pillar. And uh, in Exodus 24... Moses going to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the stone tablets. Notice that Moses went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. The very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, his very presence there. It's the same cloud that overshadowed all of them on that mount of transfiguration. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud. And notice what God the Father said. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I love this. When, when God the Father relates to Jesus as his son, he's certainly bringing, at the very least, a remembrance to us of Psalm 2. Do you remember what Psalm 2 says? It's very applicable, actually, to us today in the culture that we are in literally right now. What does Psalm 2 say? And this is so apropos for this culture and this moment in history, even in America. So I'm going to throw this in here, and I'm going to read it down to verse 7 because it'll make a lot of sense. It says this, David, being inspired by the Spirit of God, he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Do you think you're going to miss persecution, Christian? It's already happening. You're the one that's keeping the tide from spilling out. The light that is in you, the spirit of God that is in you. You are the, what, the, the spirit of God in us is what's restraining the putrescence that is just waiting. It's building up, building up, building up. And when the churches are moved, it's going to be like a tsunami of a septic tank. And it's going to roll all over the world. And all the world will be as one, just like John Lennon said. Imagine no religion. Oh, there'll be a religion, a one-world religion, and a one-world economy coming soon to a theater near you. Do you know that? A one-world economy, a digital currency all over the world coming soon. And don't be afraid, because God has told us in advance. You don't need to be afraid. But notice what he says in verse 7. When God, when God says, this is my beloved son, notice what it says in verse 7. I will declare the, the, the decree. And here he's quoting God. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's just a, a wonderful declaration of God the Father saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And when the God, God the Father says, hear him, could he be referring to Deuteronomy 18? Where, where God says in verse 18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. And notice, he shall speak to them all that I command him. In other words, I'm going to speak words to him and listen to him, all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my names, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So who are we going to be obedient to? You going to be obedient to God? It's a really good idea. He created you. When we're obedient to him, our life is a blessing, isn't it? I'm finding that whenever I'm disobedient, there is always a price tag attached. It may not be physical money and dollars, but there is a price that I pay, and it hurts. It's going to either hurt me for uh, a long time or it's going to hurt me in the short term. Either way, it's bringing about death in my life. And what does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. We have all proved this. Every one of us in this room have proved that the wages of sin is death. But obedience is a whole different matter. Are you willing to be obedient? Even to when nobody else believes you, even when nobody else cares, when people ridicule you because you're holier than thou, or when you're doing things because the word of God says it, and you say, you know, I'm not going to do that because the Bible warns me against it. Why am I going to do that when the Bible has got a lot to say about it? For instance, let me just give you an, a, a one that's a little nebulous, you know, with all the stuff about drinking in the Bible. Yes, you've got your liberty to have your glass of wine at night and everything, but let me tell you something. If you're not careful, that one glass of wine becomes two, becomes three, and next thing you know, you're sloshed and slurring your words. But the Scripture's filled with 
exhortation is stay away from it. So what do we do? We get right to the line. You know, we get up right to the line, see how far we can get before we fall over. You know, I'm gonna, I can handle this, <laughs> right? So we, get, we stand on a little line and we're doing this you know, trapeze act and God's going, I told you. You're, you're flirting around with stuff you know is wrong. And when you stay away from that line, the further away you stay from that line, the greater blessing you're going to receive. But the closer you get to it, you're going to feel a decay. You're going to feel a loss of something. Even if it's just confidence. I mean, even born-again believers can, can lose that sense of assurance. And that's the worst thing. The most miserable person on the earth is a believer who is still continuing in sin. We're all sinners, don't get me wrong, but when you know there's something and you're not working at it at all and you're just doing it and saying, well, God will forgive me, you've got to back up and start thinking about stuff because you have no assurance, do you, anymore? In your heart, you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I just feel like I'm like a casting crown. Says, you know, I feel like I'm one step away from you leaving me this way. But Jesus, you know just how far the east is from the west. So don't flirt with it. But that's what it's being spoken of there. And notice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Philippians, we don't have time to go through all these, but God the Father was well pleased with his son. In Philippians, it tells us that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And then he you know, made himself of no reputation, taking himself uh, the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God the Father has also highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name. Yes, God the Father is very well pleased with his Son, and Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 28 says, I always do those things that please him. Wouldn't that be a great testimony to have, folks? To know, to put your head on the pillow at night and say, I've done all those things that have pleased you today, God. And I've kept my account clear. Anything that I have uh, done today that has been sinful, I've confessed those things to you. I've turned away from them. And Lord, you've cleansed me, and I can put my head on the pillow cleansed and white as snow. Let me suggest if, if every one of us did that and really comprehended that, apprehended that, you wouldn't have any need for your Ambien to get you to sleep at night. You wouldn't have any need for psychiatric medicine. Chances are. I think the main reason people have so many struggles and tr troubles and trials and, and, and they, you know, again, I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but many people are messed up because they are in disobedience. Not all, but some. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus spoke this phrase. Remember in Matthew 3, verse 13, when Jesus was water baptized. What happened there? Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
I think God the Father is pleased with him. And when his disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And only Matthew's gospel tells us that after God the Father spoke, that they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And again, this is a very fitting and normal response to being in the presence of God. And we don't have time to go through it, but in Revelation and in Daniel, and uh, there's uh, wonderful examples of, of an angel or even God himself, you know, Jesus, being present. And, 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 and John or the disciple or Daniel just fell on their faces and were, were like dead. And Daniel chapter 10 Daniel's before an angel of God. It it doesn't appear to be Jesus um, pre-incarnate, but it's actually an angel. And he was so blown away by this angelic visitor that he fell on his face as if he were dead. And this is just a messenger of God. And John did the same thing. Very fitting for us to do that. But Jesus came and touched them. And said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when he lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And, and this is really important. Um, really important for the Lord to do because there should be no one. There should be no pastor. There should be no holy man, no guru that should be held in the same esteem as Jesus. In America, we're, we're hero worshipers. We have our favorite pastors of mega churches and we elevate them on high pedestals and don't you dare do it. Worship Christ. They are messengers. They're imperfect people. I'm imperfect. I know it's hard for you to believe, but... <laughs> imperfect man. You can get my wife up here and she can you know, I pull out a list. You know, pull out, you know, the scroll would just... This is what he's done bad today. He's been a bad boy. He's lost 3,000 points today because of his ill behavior. It was important for the Lord to do this because it's all about Christ and no one else. Even Peter said to the Sanhedrin in Acts, 4, in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, he says, There is salvation, there is ne- nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Nobody else. Everyone will stand at the bar of Christ. There's no one else. So just get everybody out of the, of the, push them off into the wings and let there be one, Christ in the center. Him only. Fear him. Worship him. Reverence him. Speak of him more than you do your favorite pastor, whoever that is. Verse 9, so now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no man until, notice, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And this is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? And in and, 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 uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 10, excuse me, it says that they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. And it's kind of interesting, because in the previous chapter, Jesus told them that he was going to Jerusalem, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise the third day. But it's almost like it, it, didn't, com- it didn't compute. You know, he said that he would die from the, you know, be crucified and then he would rise again. It's almost like they didn't hear that last part. All Peter heard was, what, you can't die? This movement's just getting started, man. We got to build that new temple. We got things to do. 
And isn't it true it's possible to hear the facts and hear the truth? And it'll go right over our heads. Meaning that we literally don't process what was said. But instead only focus on one part of it that was said. And we saw that with Peter. He heard it, but he didn't process it. In one ear and out the other. Verse 10, And his disciples answered him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answering said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Now, this is kind of a perplexing verse, isn't it? The disciples were confused because they knew what Malachi said. In Malachi, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, etc., etc. So they know this. And they're thinking, well, if Elijah's already come, then the kingdom must be coming like imminent. It must be coming soon. But what does Luke's gospel tell us? Remember when the angel Gabriel spoke to John the Baptist's father. Remember his name was Zacharias, or Zechariah, concerning the ministry of John uh, before he was born. And one of the things that the angel said to his father, Zechariah, is he will go before him, speaking of before Christ, he will go before him. He, John the Baptist, will go before the Lord, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not Elijah himself, but in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Here he's quoting Malachi in, in its proper context. And then Jesus in Matthew 11, we've already looked at this. He said, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come, speaking of John the Baptist. And we also believe that Elijah physically, when Christ returns, or before he returns in glory, during the tribulation period, Revelation chapter 11 talks about two witnesses. And we believe that Elijah is going to be one of those, and perhaps Moses being the two witnesses And then his disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. He was to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he certainly did. When you look at all that Elijah did and you look at the life of John the Baptist, even though his life was short, his ministry was very short, but oh, how effective it was. And so don't be discouraged by short ministries. Your ministry may go on for a long time. It may be God may call you to do something today and he's going to switch and do something with you differently later. That's always hard because we want to have a career. Right? But sometimes it doesn't work out like that. So do you believe that Jesus is coming back for his bride? Transfiguration prove to these men that there is a kingdom coming. There's a kingdom coming, folks. Are you looking forward to that kingdom? And yes, I mean, think about it right now. If, if the Lord was to rapture us right now, which would be a really great idea, if he was to rapture us right now, we would be in glory with him 
And then the events of the tribulation would take place on the earth. And then we come back at the end in his second coming with him. And he establishes his thousand-year reign, otherwise known as the millennium. Are you looking forward to that? Do you realize it's going to be on this earth? This earth. And then after that thousand-year reign, then we get a new earth, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And that will be the eternal state. That's where we will dwell physically in resurrected bodies forever and ever. That is the best thing going, isn't it? That's the message we need to tell people. And folks, it's been written here for us. Anyone who has come against the word of God has perished. (laughs) Dante, you name it. All of them have spoken ill about the word of God. They died and the Bible remains. The word of God remains forever. The same is true today. Anybody who would dare, whether it's an organization, a government, who shakes its fist at God and said, you will not reign over us, well, your day's coming, pal. If you don't turn from your sin, you're going to meet the one whose eyes are like a blazing fire, and he'll see right through you. And unless you have Christ in your heart, there is no hope. No hope. Do you have hope? Do you have hope today? And what is your hope in? That's a good answer. That's the best answer. Don't put your hope in America. I love America. I'm one of the biggest patriots that ever lived. However, there's something greater beyond all of this we have to be careful about. Be a patriot. There's nothing wrong with that. But remember, the goal is not to make this country a utopia. It's it's not going to be a utopia. We must remember the goal. The bigger picture is to grab as many as you can. And when you go up, you take them with you. You give them the hope of glory, the hope of salvation. That's the only thing that matters, folks, because there's a lot of people in heaven right now that came from all different nations and tribes. What I, what I, I'm going to tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying to just give up on America and, and just let it all go to wash. No, we should stand for truth and righteousness always. Stand for truth. Do the right things. Vote by, for heaven's sakes. Do the right things and fight the fight until the Lord takes us home. That's what we need to do. That's all we can do. But keep your eyes on the prize who is Christ Jesus and point people to him. Don't point him to anyone else. Don't point them to anyone else. Point them to Christ. If you can do that, everything will be just fine. That's the bigger thing. So let's stand together. Let's pray. And thank you for uh, your patience. This is a, a great chapter. We've still got more to look forward to. And I, I find it interesting, and just a little teaser for next week. They had this great moment on the top of the mountain. And have you ever noticed that retreats never last long? And you, you go to a retreat, and maybe God is showing you wonderful things, and you have those moments where you're just like, oh, I don't want to leave this place. I'm just so encouraged and blessed. And then the next day, you've got to go home. And, then, and this is exactly what happens. They come down from the mountain, and they get down into the valley of a demon-possessed man. 
Welcome to the ministry, guys. It's wonderful to have those mountaintop experiences, but no, it's just for a time to get you built up and strengthened because the next day you're going to have to go down and look at the guy who's foaming at the mouth and you're going to go down into the pit and you've got to deal with it. Not in your own power. And we're going to see that next week. So Father, we just thank you for this time together. Thank you for speaking your word to us, Lord. And thank you for the hope that we have. Even when things are difficult, Lord, we know that we are, of all people, the most blessed because we have a great hope. Lord, it's a blessed hope. It's a hope that the world can't understand. It's a, it's a hope that nobody can take from us, Lord. The hope of glory. Oh, Jesus, would you please fill my brothers and sisters and myself with your spirit, Lord. Give us that heart to be obedient, to be loving, and to always be pointing people to you and no one else. Lord, help us today and fill us, Lord, full. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a good night.